Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, Episode 73, The Second Ottoman-Venetian War. First, as always, I'd like to thank new Patreon supporters. We've got Marcelo Poirier, who increased their pledge, and new pledger Eleanor Hazelwood, who I had a wonderful time uh, giving a tour, a private historical tour of Sofia with, along with her wonderful parents. It was great meeting you all. And a reminder to anyone else that if you pledge $5 or more uh, per episode on Patreon, then I will give you a private historical tour of Sofia. Uh, otherwise, every month or so, I generally, I'll do a tour in Sofia, uh, but in a larger group. So, anyone living in Sofia is interested in that, uh, you can kind of check it out on Facebook uh, with the feel of Sofia. That's the group I do it with. All right, so getting right into it. Last time, we saw that although Vladislaus was crowned the new king of Hungary following the death of Matthias Corvinus, his neighbors, including his brother, weren't about to just accept that. An invasion by the Holy Roman Emperor took back all the Austrian territory Matthias had recently conquered, and ultimately he made peace with all involved and kept his throne as his brother became King of Poland and his other brother, Grand Duke of Lithuania. In the meantime, Croatian lords scored a serious victory over an Ottoman raiding party, only to suffer an equally serious defeat against another Ottoman raid two years later. Spain also completed the Reconquista and celebrated by expelling or forcibly converting its Jewish population, many of whom were welcomed into the Ottoman Empire with open arms. And finally, the last episode left off with Vladislaus and his two brothers, all three rulers, remember, meeting to discuss the possibility of a grand anti-Ottoman alliance one of several attempted during the past few years, if you'll recall. Well, short story short, it didn't work out. Territorial disputes in Central Europe were too much to overcome, and so the proposed crusade fell apart as quickly as previous iterations of the idea proposed by people like Stephen of Moldavia. But to make matters worse, John Albert, the new king of Poland, also took this opportunity to replace Stephen of Moldavia, one of the most effective anti-Ottoman leaders of the time, with his own brother, someone who was more pliable to being ruled by Poland. This worsened Hungarian-Polish relations and sets Poland and Moldavia on the path to war. Now that same year, Poland and the Ottomans signed a three-year peace treaty. Now, this would seem to open up the possibility of Poland invading Moldavia without concerns over Ottoman retaliation, because remember, Moldavia is now paying tribute to the Ottomans, and the Ottomans usually don't react well when outsiders attack their tributary states. But unrelated to any of this, except for the fact that the Ottomans must have been feeling secure in their peace treaties, 1494 was also the year of the Buyuk Mosque, also called the Great Mosque. Uh, which was then constructed in Sofia. Now, remember back more than 50 years, in 1443, Sofia had supported John Hunyadi in his war against the Ottomans, 
and as a result, the Ottomans converted many of the city's best churches into mosques. Though Sofia did gain stature during these years, as it was the capital of Rumelia, previously it had been Plovdiv, still, Sofia had a bit of a bad reputation and was in rough shape. But still, Sofia recovered and did well in the last half of the 15th century, as administrative buildings, baths, and trading infrastructure were constructed there. The city also gained a Sephardic Jewish population after their expulsion from Spain. The Buyuk Mosque construction had begun some decades earlier, but was only completed around this time. And in fact, today, it's the oldest mosque exist in existence in Sofia, uh, and has since been transformed into the city's archaeological museum, which happened in 1894. Now, I'll attach a photo of the mosque as it is today on the website. But it's one of the oldest things in Sofia, or at least one of the only kind of Ottoman things in Sofia that you can still see today. I walk past it all the time. It's a beautiful piece of architecture and a great museum. Now, this mosque was also a classic example of how grand viziers would engage in patronage by building mosques, usually with attached religious schools or perhaps a caravansaray, a kind of caravan resting place for travelers. In fact, I just finished reading the excellent Nobel Prize winning book, Bridge Over the Drina, which uh, if anyone's curious to get a real kind of an image into Ottoman history as it transitioned, in this case in Bosnia, into Austro-Hungarian history. It's a really good book, follows several centuries, and in the early chapter shows how Grand Viziers would build these sorts of things as a form of patronage. Anyways, well, that's a bit of Ottoman history in Bulgaria for you. But getting back to the narrative, a quick note. Chem Sultan finally died in Naples in early 1495, ending what tiny concern Bayezid may have had at this point, that his long, impoverished brother off in the West might pose some kind of a threat. Also in 1495, the Ottomans in Hungary signed their own three-year truce, completing Ottoman agreements with basically all of its northern neighbors. Now the question is, why was Bayezid so eager to make peace here? Was it because he faced some major threat in the East and needed to secure the Balkan front? That would have been my first guess, but no. His major concern actually seems to have been the French army invading Italy and kind of advancing down there. Bayezid had some concerns that this could threaten his western Balkan territories just across the Adriatic Sea. Though, oddly enough, Vladislaus was king of Hungary and Croatia, and this truce didn't stop Ottoman raids into Croatia. Um, so it's kind of just hard to understand really what Bayezid's thinking is, uh, and to determine why they sort of raided Croatia and the Hungarians while making peace at the same time. <clears throat> I think most likely it was these kind of local uh, local lords and things in uh, Ottoman territory who, well, the Sultan just allowed them to keep right on doing their raiding. And ultimately, as we've kind of noticed, Hungary really had a very light control over Croatia. Croatia was fairly autonomous. And so clearly making a peace treaty with the King of Hungary didn't seem to apply that much to Croatia. But overall, what's clear is that Bayezid, in spite of these concerns over France, is, well, he's a more peaceful guy. We'll, we'll see as the years drag on that Bayezid is just not nearly as warlike as his father, and so he's not interested in grand conquest, and ultimately his focus is much more on the internal politics and policies and governance of the Ottoman Empire. Anyways, in that same year in Hungary, 
Vladislaus also implemented a new tax, which enraged many nobles. One noble in particular reacted to this by calling Vladislaus an ox. This was apparently offensive enough to trigger a minor civil war, in which Vladislaus sent an army to put the offending noble into his place. This succeeded, and within a year everything kind of returned to normal. Obviously lucky for the Hungarians, they had peace with the Ottomans while all this chaos was happening. Now lastly, this year also saw a change in Wallachia. Now, you may have noticed that Wallachia has been rather quiet since Vlad the Impaler's half-brother, Vlad the Monk, retook the throne in 1482. Well, things have been quiet because, well, he's been ruling quietly as an Ottoman subject and largely staying out of all the drama around him. Well, he died of natural causes and in 1495 was succeeded by his son, Radu IV, who was married to a princess of Zeta. Nothing much changed with his coronation, just to note that this was this uh, this kind of transition. And because, well, I've been writing several episodes ahead of time, I can say you should pay attention to all these Wallachian uh, royals and things because all their kids and grandkids are going to be trading the throne in a while. Speaking of Zeta, 1496 sees some major drama occurring there as Durad IV Chernoyevich, uh, who had been ruling there for about six years while one of his brothers converted to Islam, and went to serve Bayezid as Sanjak Bey of Shkodra, nearby, well, he's sort of trying to figure out that whole situation. But that year, Durad's older brother Stefan betrayed him uh, and worked to create an anti-Ottoman alliance. Now, Durad responded by offering the Ottomans a deal, where he would continue to rule Zeta as an Ottoman vassal. In response, a local Ottoman commander invaded, forcing Durad to flee to Venice. So essentially, you know, Zeta had a, a kind of stasis, they had a stable situation, but this brother of their ruler kind of set everything off and allowed the Ottomans to finally get more involved there. When Durad arrived in Venice, the Venetians accused him of working with the Ottomans and threw him into prison, so really sucks for him. In the meantime, Stefan, the brother, was now ruling Zeta and had kind of taken over as his brother fled was trying to get uh, a deal, the same deal his brother wanted, and become an Ottoman vassal, despite trying to put together an anti-Ottoman alliance just a minute before. Uh, it's, I'd say, a pretty similar uh, kind of phenomenon to what we've seen time and time again, right? Someone's virulently anti-Ottoman, but the moment they get into power, they sort of see the writing on the wall and realize they don't stand much of a chance, and so they seek peace. But... He was only allowed to, he was allowed to become an Ottoman vassal, but only in name because the Ottomans basically spent the next few years slowly taking over his territory and then finally formally dissolving the Principality of Zeta in 1499, fully transforming it into the Sanjak of Scutari. In the aftermath, Stefan was thrown into prison, never to be heard from again, while Durad was coaxed back home in 1500 and invited to Constantinople where he was given land and titles in Anatolia in exchange for giving up any claims on Zeta. Basically, yeah, the Ottomans were willing to bribe the guy just to make absolutely sure they wouldn't have any uprisings on their hands. The Principality of Zeta had existed for 139 years, uh, but now it was gone, fully incorporated into the Ottoman Empire, not as a vassal state, but just incorporated. And... With this came really the full incorporation uh, of this mountainous region, although, well, 
it was only as incorporated as such a mountainous region could be because actually for decades the Ottomans would have to really rely on locals to maintain some kind of control there. Anyone who's ever been to these parts of Bosnia or Montenegro uh, has seen this incredible kind of rocky, rugged landscape and it's hard to imagine how an empire would really fully exercise control there. And certainly the Ottomans showed it was difficult. Now a quick note, 1496 also saw yet another example of European cruelty against its Jewish population, as Holy Roman Emperor Maximilian I expelled all Jews from several Austrian provinces. Still, there were far bigger events afoot at the time, because 1496 saw the King of Poland, who at this point had spent several years planning a major attack on Moldavia and the Ottomans, well, start off a very strange military conflict. Because Moldavia was supposedly under Polish sovereignty. Still, John Albert decided that he wanted his brother on the throne. It would take, and that would basically take precedence. Granted, this would have to put some of the sons of the previous Polish Polish king on every important throne in the region. Uh, basically, you know, the, the the former Polish king had a son as king of Poland, Duke of Lithuania, king of Hungary. There was one last son that he had that didn't have any sort of throne, and so this was the attempt to get him something. The invasion was planned for a previous year, but an attack on Polish Galicia forced John Albert to postpone it. But ultimately, the Polish army of 80,000, a very serious force, entered Moldavia and decided to bypass the fortress of Chotin, I've showed some photos on the website of that before, a very important Moldavian fortress, and kind of head straight for the Moldavian heartland. So, John Albert bypasses the fortress and heads directly for the Moldavian capital of Sucieva. Problem was, just as with previous Ottoman invasions, Stephen's scorched earth tactics were really in use here. And so these made maintaining supply and communication lines back to Poland exceptionally difficult and showed that not conquering Khotin was a serious mistake as it could have been a sort of fortress to help tie down these communication places as well as to keep supplies. But having a sort of enemy fortress right in the middle of your supply lines makes it even more difficult on top of those scorched earth campaigns. To make matters worse, Sucheva had recently been heavily reinforced. So after just a month of laying siege, the lack of progress along with famine and disease in the Polish army, and to top it all off with a nice little cherry, the oncoming winter convinced King John Albert that it was hopeless. And so an agreement was reached whereby the Polish army could return home unharmed, provided they left the way they came. John Albert agreed, but he took another route, uh, as his army was living off the land and they had already stripped the land bare where they originally came. Honestly, it seems that Stephen was anticipating this. He set an ambush for the retreating Poles, and sprung his trap while they were moving along a narrow road through the Cosmin Forest. The tight quarters made it impossible for the Poles to use their heavy cavalry, and over three days of fighting they were devastated, ultimately turning an orderly retreat into a disorderly rout. A relief force was put together, but it was utterly defeated by yet another Moldavian army. While the bulk of the Polish force ultimately made it back, they still took substantial losses in this little Moldavian adventure. Now what was odd about this brief war was that 
Moldavia actually received support from both the Ottomans and the Hungarians in this fight. The Ottomans, because the ultimate goal of the Polish king was their fortresses on the Black Sea. Remember, they had fought very hard against Moldavia to get those and were not intending to give them up. And then from Hungary, because Vladislaus was very wary of the increasing power of his brother, John Albert, uh, increasing that kind of ironic situation where Vladislaus was supporting a war against his brother to prevent his other brother from getting this throne. But, well, we all know how brothers can be. It also showed that John Albert was a fairly incompetent military commander. I mean, it's not as if he should have been shocked at Stephen's scorched earth tactics, but he did very little to prepare for that honestly very likely scenario. He apparently blamed insubordination on the part of the Polish nobility for his loss, and ultimately confiscated much of their land as punishment. But, well, as you could probably imagine, things are only going to get worse for him. The invasion of Moldavia wrapped up in November, but by next spring, Moldavian, Ottoman, and Tatar forces were all invading southern Poland and sacking several major cities. This devastation was only stopped by a new Hungarian-led anti-Ottoman alliance between Vladislaus, John Albert, and Stephen the Great, the three recent enemies. The next year, the Tatars continued their raids into southern Poland, but Moldavia had now effectively changed sides against the Ottomans, and therefore against the Tatars. Over the coming years, treaties released Moldavia from its formal position as a Polish vassal state, which, again, it technically was. This all gets very confusing. Uh, and the country also stopped paying tribute to the Ottomans as it kind of realigned itself against them. So it's a bit weird, right? Moldavia is aligning with Poland, but stopping its uh, Polish kind of sovereignty agreement. Really, Moldavia is trying to be a little more independent because it's clearly realized it can't fully rely on the Ottomans or the Poles. And it doesn't want to have to rely on either of them. Now, a quick note. 1497, the year of the Battle of the Cosmine Forest that I mentioned, was also the year Portuguese explorer Vasco da Gama saved around the sailed around the Cape of Good Hope, the southern tip of Africa, establishing a new route to India and the east. Now this will eventually challenge trade route dominance by the Ottomans and the Mamluks in Egypt, leading the Mamluks to begin to sort of fight naval wars against the Portuguese in the Indian Ocean, which we'll talk about in a few episodes. But that's an important thing to know. So the, the New World has been discovered, uh, the Spaniards and the Portuguese are both beginning to establish empires in uh, North and South America, as well as uh, now circumnavigating Africa and finding new trade routes and beginning to explore the Indian Ocean. Anyways, <clears throat> as this anti-Ottoman alliance between Moldavia, Poland, and Hungary was taking shape, the Second Ottoman-Venetian War was also taking shape on the high seas. Now, the exact catalyst for this conflict isn't particularly clear. Uh, I did a bunch of research and just couldn't find anyone explaining it too well. But it seems to have begun with the Ottoman admiral and privateer. A privateer is someone on a ship who steals other ships and steals people and goods off those ships, and, but with the legal authority of the state. So basically, if no government tells you you can do what you're doing, then you're a pirate. And if they do tell you you can do this, you're a privateer. Anyways, the man was named Kemal Reis. And at this point, he already had quite a reputation around the Mediterranean as a fearsome warrior, 
capturing ships and attacking enemies of the Ottoman Empire all around the eastern part of that sea. His flagship, the Gokke, had a 700-man crew and the most powerful cannons on any ship of this period. The main Ottoman war aim in this battle against Venice was the Venetian islands in the Aegean. Admiral Kemal met with other Ottoman naval forces to create a combined fleet consisting of 67 galleys, 20 galliots, and around 200 smaller ships of various kinds. They headed for the Ionian Sea, the sea to the west of Greece. Shortly after entering the sea, they met a Venetian navy consisting of 47 galleys, 17 galliots, and perhaps 100 smaller vessels. When the two fleets met, the Ottomans had a numerical advantage, and it was the commanders who decided how the stage would be set for the coming battle. The Venetian commander was not very experienced, and his commanders were ignored by many his commands rather were ignored by many of his captains, leading to an uncoordinated attack. Over three days of fighting, the Venetians had some success, but ultimately their lack of coordination led to an inability to really take advantage of these successes. They received some French reinforcements, but the French soon left, frustrated by that same lack of coordination. Ultimately, the Ottomans were victorious, though it was not a crushing victory. The Venetian commanders were blamed and banished to an island as punishment. In the meantime, the Ottomans began to attack some Venetian territories in the Adriatic from the Balkans. In December of 1499, the Venetians attacked more Ottoman territories in Greece, but quickly lost what they had gained to Admiral Kemal, who quickly brought 15,000 Ottoman craftsmen to repair his ships and prepare for the next stage of the war. Once ready, he set out and attacked the Venetian-controlled island of Corfu and defeated the Venetian fleet once again at the Battle of Modon. Though that year, 1500, Ottoman forces also took what Venetian territories remained throughout Greece. There was, however, one Ottoman setback, wherein a joint Venetian-Spanish army conquered an Ottoman fortress on a particular Ionian island late in 1500. So while the war with Venice was raging, events far to the east were occurring which would have a massive impact on the Ottomans. Because from 1499 into 1500, a sort of uprising by Shia Muslim populations in Azerbaijan, Anatolia, and Syria led to the creation of a small but militant army which won several battles against the Turkoman Akkoyunlus, who you'll remember we've talked about a lot. They're sort of the immediate Ottoman neighbor to the east who the Ottomans defeated with their use of gunpowder weapons. By 1501, Shah Ismail I had led his forces to victory and founded the Safavid dynasty, which over the next decade will rise to become the new preeminent power in Persia and one of the major rivals to the Ottomans. Recognizing this, Bayezid began moving his empire's Shia population out of Anatolia and away from the allure of the Safavids as early as 1502. Because remember, the Ottomans were a Sunni, Sunni Islam state and, well, there was a real possibility that these uh, Shias could become a sort of fifth column and work against them and for the Safavids. This was extremely dangerous and very concerning for the Ottomans. 
So this meant first, well, as you could probably guess, the end of Akkoyunlu. So this state, this Turkoman state, finally died. And next to that, immediately after its founding, the Safavids sent envoys to seek an alliance with Venice in its war against the Ottomans. So clearly the Safavids were from the from basically day one, very anti-Ottoman. This meant that once again, the Ottomans faced the danger of a two-front war. Although I couldn't find any reference to what happened with those negotiations, and it seems like they went nowhere. But for the time being, kind of the Safavids are very busy establishing themselves in Persia, sort of conquering territory and really building an empire out of nothing. But we need to keep in mind that they are the new power to the east and they are very dangerous for the Ottomans. Back in Europe, Vladislaus signed an alliance with Venice, whereby Venice agreed to pay an annual sum to Hungary of 30,000 florins in peace years and 100,000 during years of war. The Pope also helped Venice financially in the deal to make sure it all worked out. But wait, you might be asking, what on earth happened to that anti-Ottoman alliance everyone just agreed to? What's going on there? Well, Lithuania was too busy fighting the Grand Duchy of Muscovy, basically what will eventually become a part of Russia, but for now, Moscovy, Moscow. And Poland was worried about further attacks by the Crimean Tatars. And Moldavia, well, Stephen the Great was in poor health. A delegation uh, of his had arrived in Venice in 1501 to explore joining Venice and Hungary in a war against the Ottomans and to look for a doctor to help Stephen. But you know, so you can kind of see here that uh, this grand Ottoman alliance is put together, but just at the moment, it did come together while well, everyone got very busy. And, well, know who else could have used experienced doctors as well, Stephen? John Albert, because the King of Poland died at the age of 41 at this point, which made his brother Alexander, who was Duke of Lithuania, also King of Poland. As Alexander was still suffering wars and attacks by the Tatars and Muscovy alike, this made Polish involvement in the anti-Ottoman crusade even less likely, because, well, now Poland had to help its Lithuanian allies. Still, the war with Venice continued as the Ottomans finally captured Durazzo, remember Durekium, uh, modern Dures in Albania, and, well, by 1502, the Venetians gave up. They signed an armistice to end the fighting while they negotiated a proper treaty. Still, Hungary did make some attacks on the Ottomans in Serbia, but this didn't really have much of an impact on the war overall. It seemed very likely that the Second Ottoman-Venetian War was over. Meanwhile, in 1502, the Khan of the Crimean Cognate, remember an Ottoman ally, with Moldavian help, defeated the last Khan of the Golden Horde and took over all of its territory, declaring his state to be its successor. This put an end to one of the last Mongol successor states, which had existed for more than two and a half centuries. Its collapse, as we know, also in part led to the expansion of the Grand Duchy of Muscovy, which again is sort of gradually morphing into Russia and fighting and winning generally against the Lithuanians. This victory also allows Stephen to take a portion of southern Poland while the state is distracted. So, uh, well, Moldavia got to kind of take advantage of all this distraction. In 1503, a final peace treaty to all these Ottoman conflicts is being negotiated, as Ottoman raiding forces make their way all the way to northern Italy, putting immense pressure on the Venetians to really end the war and to agree to even worse terms. Ultimately, 
Venice is forced to accept all the territorial gains of the Ottomans, and its economy hits a hits a new well, basically takes a big hit uh, because many of those territories along the Adriatic coast that it just lost were vital ports for Venetian trade. Peace with Hungary is mediated by the Vlachian Voivoda Radu, who I mentioned earlier. Hungary, for its part, loses some Bosnian castles, which helped its defense line against the Ottomans there. Moldavia is a force to accept Ottoman control over Chilea and Chitatea Alba and resume tribute to the Ottomans once again. Then, that same year, the Duke of Lithuania slash King of Poland, Alexander, for himself signs a five-year peace treaty with the Ottomans. And that's where I'll end things today. With the Ottomans making some marginal gains in a variety of conflicts, but with the rising power of the Safavids keeping Sultan Bayezid up at night. Venice has now lost its second war in a row with the Ottomans and is seeing its trading empire take significant blows as a result. Now, as we enter the 16th century and look over the seemingly endless list of failed Ottoman alliances, the question is still in the air. Can anyone still check their growing power? Well, we'll have to wait and see. This episode was written and produced by me, Eric Halsey. The theme music was written and performed by Teddy Raven. As always, Uspech.